Tonight I'd like to speak in a way that I hope is somewhat simple about spiritual practice and meditation or spiritual life. Because if we look around at the various systems of spiritual practice, Buddhism and its all of its teachings being one among many, there are all these uh, complicated or um, involved perspectives on what's good and what's not and what's right to do and what's not and the way one should live and eat and speak and so forth. Um, and yet in the essence uh, it seems to come down to some very very simple principles. Here we come for example this evening to sit and begin to meditate and the meditation is a quality is held in a quality of attention, really the attention of the heart to be present for this moment, this body, this mind, what opens, and to learn to receive this moment with some balance or peacefulness or compassion and understanding. In some way I see the training that we do, especially those who come in some regular way or have committed themselves to this practice of mindfulness and presence as a training both to live well and to die well. And I think they're really the same thing. Now in particular in this past week there have been um, several significant deaths globally in terms of well-known figures. There's Mother Teresa, of course, and Princess Diana, and then a teacher in India named uh, Punja, um, who died a few days ago, who was a wonderful master and a teacher for many of those in the Spirit Rock Teachers Collective, Sylvia and James and Anna and Howie and various people, Ramdas, all these people went and spent time with Punja. Um, and one of the things that I've been reflecting about in hearing of these deaths is the kind of simplicity that comes in face of death. Because when we're faced with the fact of death, of our own death, of the death of those around us, everything becomes simplified or clarified. You know how our lives can often get complicated and confused and caught up in things that are, from another perspective, trivial. And then there's this amazing thing. Here we are and we have our schedule book full of appointments and plans and our bank balance that we have to attend to and our vacations and our family members and so forth. And then one day, no one knows how far or near that is, that's not given to us to know. But one day, we're not here anymore. And all those things that seem so real and so full of plans and all those events and so forth, cease. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine or sense unless we're silent and really listen deeply. Now, whether one believes in past or future lives or not, 
each of us carry a certain energy of life. And what the task of the spiritual life, which looks deeply into this question of being alive, asks is what do we do with this energy of life? What matters to us? More than some philosophy or set of ideas, how do we live? How well do we love in this life? How present are we for what has been given to us? This is from the poet Rumi, Persian poet and sage. He writes, on that last day, God will say, what did you do with the strength and the energy that your food gave you on earth? How did you use your eyes? What did you make with your five senses before they were dimmed and playing out? I gave you hands and feet as tools for preparing the ground for planting. Did you, in the health I gave, do the plowing? And what seeds did you plant? The seeds of life are made in the present moment. Each moment, our response, our awareness, our presence, our connection, is the planting of a seed of what creates the future. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to talk about how simple spiritual life was. He said, be aware, pay attention. Keep it simple and stick to the present moment, is what he would say. Keep it simple and be here. In the suchness of life, there's just the breathing, there's just the thinking, there's just the words that come, just the hearing of them. Just this moment, and this moment, and this moment. Keep it simple. Or he would say, you don't possess anything, really, do you? Even your own body is not yours to possess. If it was, you could do whatever you wanted with it. But it ages no matter what you think, doesn't it? Has a kind of will of its own. And you say, well, all right, I possess my mind then. Try and stop it for one meditation sitting. See if it listens. Well, do you possess your family, you know, or your car, or your house, or those things? All of these things are subject to change to loss, to pain, as they are subject to birth, they're subject to death. As they contain joy, they contain also sorrow. It is their nature. Will you meet the change wisely? Will you meet the loss, the inevitable change wisely? Or will you suffer? That was his question. You don't possess anything. How you deal with this life, then? You're only here for a short time. 
What seeds will you sow? Those of awareness, openness, freedom, love? Mother Teresa, in the hearts of the millions of people whom she touched, who admired her, I think exemplified that quality of the simplicity of spiritual life. She said, in this world you cannot do great things. You can only do small things with great love. And I remember visiting in Calcutta, Mother Teresa's places and community and speaking with her or volunteering there a number of different times, being in India. And Calcutta is the most, to me, still the most amazing city in Asia because it's still old Asia. It's kind of like you'd imagine Shanghai was in 1850 or something. Calcutta is the only city I know in a big city where there are man-pulled rickshaws, you know. It's not even bicycle rickshaws, but these rickshaws with people who are lifting those two long bars and running through the streets barefoot and pulling them and shouting for the cattle and the cars and the trolley cars and the trucks and buses and everything to get out of the way which they don't do, you know, and it's chaotic and loud and dirty and, and amazing and I like it actually. It's, it's incredibly alive if, if, if you can find some center in it. But there is Calcutta, this kind of the most old-style city in Asia, filled with, just teeming with people and sounds and all the stuff of life on the street. And then if you go to visit Mother Teresa's Center for the Dying Destitutes, which is what she called it, Nirmal Hridaya, the, 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 the heart of peace, you find it's at the Kali Temple, um, which is this huge temple to Kali, um, the goddess of, um, who represents that side of life that not only is born but is destroyed. And not just the destruction of life, but also the destruction of ego and illusions and separateness. She's also got a very spiritual function. There's this giant uh, temple, thousands of pilgrims coming, and the streets around crowded with people and beggars and whatever. And then you go into one corner of the temple that Mother got this building. And what's striking is how simple it is and how clean the walls are clean and the floors are mopped a couple times a day and there are cots for people and there's almost nothing there, just the simple cots the people paying attention to those who are dying and the simple walls and not a lot of decorations one picture of Mother Teresa on the wall and then a little saying from her that says something like we are not here to be social workers to care for others the way the government might. We are here to give the love of God to the poor as we would to anyone. Um, and what's amazing in this place, besides that it's very simple and quiet, um, is that it's not solemn. You'd think, oh, heavy, you know, Mother Teresa's people dying, streets of Calcutta taken in and so forth. It's not solemn at all. The nuns laugh 
and they joke and they joke with the people who are dying and they tell stories and there's this tremendous sense of um, lightness and beauty <coughs> that's there um, and love you come in and yes welcome can we help you you want to help here's something that you can do it's amazing in the middle of all that dirt and difficulty she says yes there is where you find the divine Jesus in his distressing disguise you know there have been all these stories and videos and films made of Mother Teresa one of my favorite was an early one that was made called Something Beautiful for God for BBC and in it the uh, interviewer Malcolm Muggridge um, after visiting all Mother Teresa's places looks at her at some point and he says you know you make it seem so easy you know there's someone who's sick you care for them there's someone who's hungry you feed them you make it sound so easy but it, it must be somehow I don't know maybe it's easy for you as a nun because you don't have a car and a insurance policy and a spouse and all the things that make life difficult for us you know maybe it's easier that way and she said oh no no she said um, she said I'm married too and she held up the ring that is the golden ring the symbolic wedding of um, the nuns in her order to Jesus she said I'm married too and he can be very difficult sometimes <laughs> So we used to show this film of Mother Teresa at the end of the three-month retreat that we would teach and three-month silent retreat in the center we have in the East Coast in Massachusetts. People who sat for three months and then be in integration week, or sometimes we call it disintegration week, depending. People would be preparing to go from three months of silence back into the world, and this was kind of the exemplar. And what people took from it was the simplicity that she represented, that just as one could sit and walk and take a cup of tea and be present for that, so one could be present for one's neighbor or one's family or the community or the environment. But it also, again, wasn't so easy, although very simple. And there were some nuns in the movie talking to Mother Teresa in their training about well, what do you do when too many people come and the demands are too great and it's all so difficult and you don't have enough food and people are coming and pulling at you and the kind of scenes that you can imagine in India. And you just want to retreat. And um, this one senior nun who's training them, she says, Mother says, let them eat you up. This was her phrase. Mother says, let them eat you up. If they're hungry, let them eat you up. You know? And we would just kind of look at that and our jaws would drop. Oh, because you know, we just finished teaching three-month retreat and in the early years we sat most of the sittings and did seven days of interviews with people and then go back in and sit. And by the end of three months of being um, very much immersed in that as teachers, we would be really tired. And then we'd see the movie and it would say, Mother says, let them eat you up. You know? I want a vacation. You know? <laughs> mm, but it was also a reminder of that, see all the places of holding and realize when she said it, she laughed 
And when the senior nun said it, they laughed. And there was such happiness in just letting go of moi, you know. <sighs> and the simplicity that she offered was not just in India, as one knows. You know, she traveled through this country and she said, it's true that not so many Americans are starving or hungry for food. Instead, the hunger here is for love. There's so much isolation and loneliness here. And it's the same hunger, but it's the hunger of the heart. Um, or it's the hunger of people in the Western society who are not able to give their heart's gift. People who are out of work or unemployed or homeless or something where there's nothing that they can give. And she would say, people with AIDS, HIV, homeless, orphans, we'll take them. The dying, whoever it is, someone, someone needy, we will take them. Send them to us. What a response. Just that, so simple. And then I remember hearing her say, because volunteers would come from all over the world, thousands would come to Calcutta, longing to serve, longing in some way to touch that joy of heart that comes of just giving yourself that freely. And they would come for a day or a week or a month or a year, however long it was, and she would say, now that you've seen what's possible, to love here, to love the people from the streets, to love those who are hungry, the orphans, the, the ones who, are, who have leprosy. Now that you've seen this, don't stay in India. We don't need you in India. Go home where you need it. You know, and love the people in your family and in your community, in your neighborhood. That's simple. My daughter asked me the other morning if Mother Teresa and I will meet up there now. What do you think? I said, very possible. Who knows? Now, in the same spirit of Mother Teresa for this week, there's been this huge outpouring for Princess Diana. Um, and in a way, it's kind of remarkable because she was still a young woman and she's almost being canonized again like some saint. And it seems in part because she symbolizes something terribly important to a lot of people. And part of that is the obvious, her humanitarian concerns for homeless or landmines or all the things that she worked for, especially in recent years. But certainly that's not enough. I think even more it's because she brought out the human element in an open-hearted way in this place of royalty. She brought a kind of warmth and humanity to it. And people said, wow, they're real. They're people like us. There was some way that her heart was open enough, vulnerable enough, whatever it was, that people could feel that. And I think the tremendous interest is there also because we are interested in royalty. It doesn't matter where you are, you know. And we're interested in royalty because we too seek nobility. 
We seek the gold of kings and queens and princes and princesses. And it's no accident that the Buddha was born as a prince, or that Jesus at times is called the king of kings and so forth. Um, or that when um, one hears some of the most important Buddhist texts, like the Book of the Dead that's read, whispered in the ear to those who are dying, they begin by saying with this phrase, O nobly born, you who are of noble birth, son or daughter of the Buddha, listen to these words carefully. They are a reminder of your true nature, of your own inner riches. And in some way, I think all of that interest in the gold and the beauty and the beauty of her heart was that interest, that seeking of the nobility of our own inner riches that, re that recognizes that. So Mother Teresa carried that and Diana carried it. And we each have it. To sit, to listen in a deep way with mindfulness and attention is to reawaken this nobility, this spirit that longs to express itself in our life. It's to remember that we can let go of the identification with fear, with the small sense of self, with all the petty things that we get caught up in. And some of the petty things seem big and important, but they're not really. Not in the mirror of death. They become not so important. To sit and listen is to remember who we really are and what really matters. The silence of contemplation, time of meditation, the walk in the woods or on the beach by the ocean with nothing to do and nowhere to get to, but just listening about this life, this heart and body. A poem for you by Thomas Centolina. And it begins with a line from St. John of the Cross that goes, in the evening we shall be examined on love. And it won't be multiple choice, though some of us would prefer it that way. Neither will it be essay, which tempts us to run on when we should be sticking to the point, if not together. No cheating will be told, and we'll try to figure the cost of being true to ourselves. In the evening, when the sky has turned that certain blue, blue of exam books, blue of no more daily evasions, we shall climb the hill as the light empties and park our tired bodies on a bench above the city and try to fill in the blanks. And we won't be tested like defendants on trial, cross-examined till one of us breaks down guilty as charged. No, in the evening, after the day has refused to testify, we shall be examined on love like students 
who don't even recall signing up for the course and now must take their orals, forced to speak for once from the heart and not off the top of their heads. And when the evening is over and it's late, the student body asleep, even the great teachers retired for the night, we shall stay up and run back over the questions, each in our own way. What's true? What's false? What unknown quantity will balance the equation of the heart? and what it would mean years from now to look back and know we did not fail. In the evening we shall be examined on love. It's extremely simple and perhaps the aim of this difficult practice of meditation with all the restlessness and thoughts and boredom and fear and attachments and entanglements and so forth is just an unlearning, an ungrasping, a letting go, a trusting in something deeper in the heart, a trusting in the Tao. As it says in the Tao Te Ching, The ancient masters did not try to educate the people, but kindly taught them to not know. What a relief. When they think they know the answers, people are difficult to guide. When they realize that they don't know, people can find their own way. If you want to learn how to govern, avoid being clever or rich. The simple kindness is the clearest path. Content with an ordinary life, you can show all people the way back to their own true nature. It's that simple. I really think that was the spirit of Mother Teresa, that simple. And yet, there's such a power of even one person who trusts in that, who comes back to that place of trust. It's like that one person, Thich Nhat Hanh, used to say that on the refugee boats that would leave Vietnam, crowded with people, overcrowded, on the South China Sea where pirates would come and big storms would come up, he said many boats were lost and many people were drowned. But in the, the boats that survived when he spoke with the refugees, even if it was a terrible storm and people were frightened and crazed, if there was one person on the boat that stayed calm, one person who could remember what really mattered and stay present, it would affect the whole boat. It could save so many people's lives. Like Gandhi said, I believe in the essential unity of all that lives. And therefore I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. 
This simplicity has an enormous power to it, a kind of integrity or strength that's not our own, but is the greatness of the world of life of the Tao. It was in this spirit also that Punja, or Papaji, as those who knew him taught. And so many of our teachers and friends went to see him and were inspired by this man in India, in Lucknow, in the city of Lucknow. He's a great big man. And I, I heard the description uh, when James and Sylvia and Ramdas and some people were there that he, he didn't want to sit up on his little kind of platform, his little bed, whatever, by himself. When Ramdas was there, he said, come on, Ramdas, you come sit with me. Ramdas said, no, no, I'm just here, you know, as a student. And Punja got down and he picked Ramdas up, <laughs> just carried him and put him right there on the tucket next to him. Everybody laughed for a long time about that. This is where you belong, Ramdas. Ah. But he told the story of his ardor for awakening. And before he did the practices of Ramana Maharshi, the teacher that he eventually followed, he was a bhakti, a, a devotee of Krishna. And he said he would chant to Krishna in the morning, in the evening, hoping for some illumination from the divine, from Krishna as God to come. And he said he got so... Um, deeply uh, longing to be known or filled with that energy of the divine. He said that as a young man, he got a sari from the, his wife, and he put it on and he made himself up as a woman, as a girl, to be the bride for Krishna, to be the gopi, to be the bride for God, and would sit and pray like that for some illumination to enter him. Anyway, Punja said at some point, after years of his own meditation and spiritual practice, he met this yogi or someone came by speaking of a teacher, and he had this whole vision of this teacher, said, yes, this is in South India, in Tiruvannamala, in this ashram at uh, Arunachala Mountain. And so he went on pilgrimage and arrived there, and sure enough, when he came in quite astonished, he saw sitting there in front of him this teacher that he had met that had come to tell him where to come. And he asked the teacher, and the teacher said, Oh no, I've been here all along. I've never gone anywhere. Um, but that was, of course, the way Ramana Maharshi taught. Extremely simple, simply and silently. He, his picture I put here, I didn't have a picture of Punja, so I put a picture of his teacher. Ramana Maharshi. This is one of the most famous photographs of an Indian sage of this century, um, one of the most deeply regarded Indian teachers, Ramana. Um, he taught with very few words. Mostly he just looked at people and loved them. You know, he'd sit in silence for a long time, and if you really pressed him for teachings, he'd say, well, um, pay attention. Ask, inquire in yourself, what is this life you've been given? Who are you? I remember James, when he went to James Barris, friend and teacher here at Spirit Rock, when he went to be with Punja. And Punja was teaching about um, 
the grace of the guru and all the blessings that come. And James said, you know, Punjaji, I'm used to meditating and feeling my own breath and body and the play of the mind and learning a kind of freedom in the midst of that, but I don't know anything about this grace stuff. How do you know when you're getting the grace of the guru? And Punja looked back at him and said, you mean you are asking this question? You are a meditation teacher? You're here in India with all these good friends. You, 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 know, you brought your wife. You have this beautiful family. You showed me pictures, your meditation center. Now you are in India at the foot of the guru, with, surrounded with these spiritual people, meditating every day, and you're asking, where is the grace? <laughs> you are neck deep in grace. And you don't know it. You're neck deep in grace. And that was really Ramana's teaching as well as Punja's. He also called what he taught self-inquiry, the question that he would ask, he would offer to people is a simple one, who am I? He also called what he taught self-inquiry, the question that he would ask, he would offer to people is a simple one, who am I? And you would take that as your mantra, as your prayer, as a blessing, and say, who am I? Who am I really? Am I this body? Who am I? Am this these thoughts, these worries, these hopes, these plans? Who were you before all of that? What brought you into this life? Who are you? So that when Ramana Maharshi died, you know, he was dying of cancer and his disciples were all around him saying, please don't leave us, please don't leave us, Guruji. And he would say, but where could I go? Where could I go? You don't understand. I'm always here. I remember another teacher in that lineage, Nisargadat, who was um, like Punja, a disciple of Ramana Maharshi, with whom I spent a lot of time, an old man in Bombay. And somebody asked him at the end of his life, we're all getting old, old age is not pleasant, aches and pains, weakness and approaching end. How does a sage feel as an old man? How does the inner self look at this growing, aging? And um, Maharaj answered, as he gets older, he grows more and more happy and peaceful. After all, he is going home. Like a traveler nearing his destination and collecting his luggage, he leaves the train without regret. That's simple. So again, this kind of fundamental simplicity a sense of trust and grace. In the Buddhist teachings it talks about no self, not possessing, not sensing, or not believing that we're separate, because it's just a thought or an idea, this sense of separate self. It's not the reality. And letting go moment by moment, just letting go from Rilke. He said, in spite of all the farmer's work and worry, 
He can't reach down to where the seed is slowly transmuted into summer. It is the earth herself that bestows this gift. We don't breathe, it breathes itself. We don't ask our heart to beat, it beats itself. We certainly don't ask our thoughts to come. They kind of pour through like a waterfall, don't they? It's amazing. This life presents itself. So what we seek is not something, some great mystery far away. It's the mystery that we are, that is here already with us. Those who were with Punja talked about the kind of grace that came. I read you one account. This is out of this new book I've been working on about people's spiritual lives and practices. Um, that's tentatively entitled after the ecstasy, the laundry. Um, this is in the ecstasy part. It's one of the teachers, friends who'd gone to be with Punja. I was on spiritual pilgrimage from Asia and I got this letter in response to the teacher, Punja, that I'd written about the moment when the Buddha held up a flower to his chief disciple and his mind just opened to the beauty and freedom of each moment as it is. So I ended up in India visiting this old grandfather and a handful of students in a little room in a back alley, Lucknow. And I was struggling with the noise, the chaos of India. Days passed and I was feeling, I'm not getting it, nothing is happening. And a lot of people came where nothing did happen. And then it seemed he was giving more attention to the men in the room and I felt, oh, this is just an Indian male trip. He doesn't understand women. Each day people would bow to him and I thought, oh, who needs bowing? I'm not into it. I'm a feminist from America. But he persisted in asking us to inquire, who are we? Not by struggling, but by letting go. Let go of seeking. Let go of all that you sought. Let go of the seeker, he would say. And then one day, one afternoon, he came close and looked in my eyes and wouldn't let me go. And I felt like I was a cornered animal and tremendous fear came as if something huge was about to happen. I felt like I'd been avoiding, distracting myself from this place for eons, but now I was caught and couldn't get away or avoid it. He said some words, but mostly it was the contact, the eyes, the energy that carried me. There came this tremendous light in this huge space of nothingness, and I was gone in a moment, nowhere and everywhere. And then tremendous laughter and joy and crying. Everything in my life seemed to have led up to that moment. It all made sense that moment. Every struggle and fear, and now it was over. I was everything and nothing and completely free. That was it. After that, I couldn't hurl myself at his feet enough times. There was so much gratitude. I would have given him anything, but of course, he wanted nothing. I finally understood all my years of Buddhist practice. We laughed about that. And now I see, as I work with others, the biggest surprise is that people think there's something to get, someone to be, something to do, 
when it's so obvious there's nothing to do, except you still do it. There's the doing that's necessary to arrive at that ease and grace, that place of not doing. Punja. Hmm. So it's not someplace else, and it won't come later, and it's not outside. It's here, in a moment of presence, in this moment, in this moment, this breath, the sounds, this body, the light. Fantastic. Rumi again. I've said before that every craftsman searches for what's not there to practice his craft. A builder looks for the rotten hole where the roof caved in. A water carrier picks the empty pot. A carpenter stops at the house with no door. Workers rush toward some hint of emptiness, which they then start to fill. Their hope, though, is for emptiness, so don't think you must avoid it. It contains all you need. Dear soul, if you were not friends with the vast nothing inside, why would you always be casting your net into it and waiting so patiently? This invisible ocean has given you such abundance, but still you call it death, that which provides you all sustenance and work. Cast your net into that. Kind of simplicity in all of this. The simplicity of the presence of Mother Teresa or the humanity that one admires in the nobility of Diana. The simplicity of letting go of all the small things not to become something bigger or better, but to remember this mystery that we are. Now, in talking about these things, there's still a danger of some new set of ideals, some new philosophy, some great spiritual kind of image that will fit to these about how to live and die in this mystery. But nobody can tell you how to do it. Nobody's lived your life before. Not a single person. It's new and unique, completely your own. I remember some friends who were with Katagiri Roshi, the Zen master in Minneapolis who died several years ago of cancer. And as he was getting sicker, the students were gathering around and caring for him and attending, but also watching very closely. And finally he got kind of tired of that, you know, the paparazzi or whatever, only it was his students. And he said, what are you all watching, huh? You want to see how a Zen master dies, don't you? You're all waiting for that. He said, I'll show you how a Zen master dies. And he started kicking and pounding the bed. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I hate this. I don't want to die for a while. And moved back. He said, that's how I die. He said, you all have ideas about how you die. When you die, just die. Do it your own way. Hmm. 
Here, I'll throw another little stone in the pond, if you will, of our ideas. All these teachings about death and rebirth afterward and the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the visions of Buddhas that come or the, you know, life after life, the near-death experiences, the white light, the grandparents that come and welcome you to the other side, which people report and which transform their lives. It's true. I was having a conversation with Stephen Levine about all of this some years ago, 10 or 12 years ago. It was during that period when um, one of the popular children's toys line was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Remember that phase, right? And Stephen was working with some dying children at that point. And he said, yeah, it's pretty mysterious, isn't it, what people see as they die? He said, I had one little boy last week who was dying. and he, They brought him back from the brink of death in the ICU. He was clinically dead, and he told me he saw a light, and he left his body, all those things. And I said, oh. He said, yeah, and then he was there, and I said, who's he? And it was Raphael, I think it was, or whatever the name of the of kind of the benevolent teenage mutant Ninja Turtle. They all Michelangelo, you know. You ask the kid in that era, do you know who Raphael is? Oh yeah, he's a turtle in the cartoon, right? Or Michelangelo. But it was whichever one was the kind of Yoda figure, that kind of wise one, and that's what this child saw. Now, what does that mean to you? Hmm. That really raises a question, doesn't it, huh? <laughs> About who makes all of this, doesn't it? All is mind made, says the Buddha, or the beginning, the first verse of the Dhammapada. Mind is the forerunner of all things. All that we are arises with the mind. With our thoughts we make the world speak or act with an impure mind or heart, and trouble will follow you as surely as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Mind is the forerunner of all things. We are what we think. Our lives are created out of mind. All that we are arises with thought. With our thoughts we make this world Speak or act with a pure mind and heart, and happiness will follow you as closely as your shadow, unshakable. So the idea isn't some new philosophy, but to see birth and death each moment and the creation of life in each moment. And what seeds will we plant? What will we train? or awaken in our heart. This is what matters more than all the other things, as much as what we have or do. What is the spirit, that seed of the heart, that gets planted now and now and now? And it doesn't, it's not far away and it's not complicated. In a moment, just sitting here quietly, one can discover the power of this attention to life, the power of this mindfulness, of this 
deep looking and of compassion to see the whole dance of our life, its complications, entanglements, the fear, all these things, and you say, yes, there's the whole drama, the whole theatrical production of it. Shakespeare's, you know, kind of middle place. There we are, the tragedies or the comedies or whatever. You say yes, and in the moment that you say yes, it dissolves into nothing, into space, into thin air, and it's just, ah, this too. Wasn't that an amazing year? Remember 1996? And then it's gone. Or the 80s, or the 70s, or whatever you remember, the 60s. And in that moment of seeing, look at all that, there's some great space that opens, and we return back to where we began, to this eternal present, to our heart, to our true home. My teacher Ajahn Chah put it this way, and I think he said this in speaking to a person who was dying. He said, you've been alive for a long time. Your eyes have seen any number of forms and colors. Your ears have heard so many sounds and you've had any number of experiences. And that's all they were, just experiences. You've eaten delicious foods, and all the good tastes were just good tastes, nothing more. The unpleasant tastes were just unpleasant tastes, that's all. If the eye sees a beautiful form, that's all it is, just a beautiful form. And an ugly one is an ugly form. The ear hears an entrancing, melodious sound, and it's nothing more than that. A grating, disharmonious sound is simply so. You can compare it to household utensils that you've had for a long time. Your cups, saucers, plates, and so on. When you first had them, they were clean and shining, but now after using them for so long, they start to wear out, don't they? Some are broken, chipped, some have disappeared, those left are deteriorating, they have no stable form. It's their nature to be like that. Your body is the same way. It has been continually changing right from the day you were born, through childhood and youth, until now, in whatever age you have reached. You must accept that. Contemplate this. You needn't worry about this, however. You needn't worry about anything, because this isn't your real home. It's just a temporary shelter. If you look at it like that, your heart will be at ease. Anyone can build a house of wood and bricks, but the Buddha taught us that that is not our real home. Our real home is inner peace. Rest in that. So there's an invitation from all of these figures and from death itself, that reminder, or from the simplicity of the meditation to rest in this place of knowing. It's not just Mother Teresa. We also love to do what she did. It's true. It's not just Punja. Um, we also know in many moments we remember that freedom. Trust that. 
Believe in that. Rest in that. And it's not just Diana. We all carry that gold, that beauty, that nobility. I end with a story and then we'll sit and have a chant at the end of the sitting. This is a story from Tales of a Magic Monastery by a friend of mine, Father Theophane, this wild old Trappist monk who's about six foot five and gaunt and wears these white and black robes and looks like a great bird when he moves. I'm a monk myself, and the one question I really wanted to ask in the magic monastery is what does it mean to be a true monk? Well, I finally got to ask, but for the answer, I got the most peculiar question. Do you mean in the daytime or at night? Now, what could that mean? When I didn't answer, he picked it up again. A monk, like everyone else, is a creature of expansion and contraction. During the day, he is contracted behind his cloister walls, dressed in a habit like all the others, doing the routine things you expect a monk to do. At night, he or she expands. The walls cannot contain them. They move throughout the world and they touch the stars. Oh, I thought, nice poetry. But to bring him back down to my question, I began to ask, well, during the day in his real body. Ah, wait, he said, that's the difference between us and you. You people regularly assume that the contracted state is the real body. It is real in a sense, but here we tend to start from the other end, from the expanded state. The daytime state we refer to as the body of fear. And whereas you tend to judge a monk or a nun by their decorum during the day, we tend to measure a monk or a nun by the number of persons they touch at night and the number of stars. So let's sit, and sit, if you will, in your expanded body. <laughs>